Have you ever heard the phrase, the end is nigh? I'm sure we all have uh, in some place or another. And we generally associate it with kind of crazed, wide-eyed street preachers uh, yelling on a street corner with perhaps a billboard and with the words, the end is nigh uh, on it. Now, as I say that, I'm not dismissing um, the work of street preachers. I was involved uh, in street preaching myself this last Wednesday. As with all things, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way. There's a good way, a useful way, a profitable way to do things and a not-so-profitable way to do things. Uh, But that message, the end is nigh, is actually from the Bible. Uh, It's not just those with billboards on street corners. And we read it uh, in the passage just a few moments ago. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, But the end of all things is at hand. Other words, the end is nigh. The end is coming. Uh, In God's calendar... In God's plan for this world, he has accomplished almost everything before Christ's second coming. Uh, Every event which God had planned has almost been fulfilled. And the end is at hand. But Peter doesn't stop there. Peter doesn't just stop there where, sadly, so many street preachers do. Peter tells us how we should respond given the fact that the end is at hand, the end is coming. And he doesn't tell us to respond with sort of crazed panic. That isn't what Peter says. Instead, he tells us three things very clearly, three ways we should respond to this reality that Christ is coming back soon, that Christ is going to wrap up this world like a scroll. Uh, He's going to fold it up like a garment. That's what the Bible teaches. And as I say, Peter tells us three ways we should respond to that knowledge and this morning I'd like to go through each of those three ways so that we can learn how to respond rightly to the reality that this world is going to end imminently sometime soon and the first way the first attitude that Peter says we should have in response to that, is that we should be clear-minded and sober. Clear-minded and serious. You can see that in verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Uh, That word translated serious literally means sober. Uh, The opposite of drunk. 
that word translated watchful means clear-minded, not clouded, not befuddled, but seeing and thinking clearly. Peter says, because the end is at hand, there is a need for us to be sober and clear-headed. Not to be respond with wide-eyed panic, running around saying the end is nigh by itself. But we should have a clear-headed calm because the end is coming. Uh, reminds me of a story, a joke, I guess, in a sense, about two men uh, who, like those I've just mentioned, stood by the side of a road holding a sign saying, the end is near, turn yourself around before it is too late. And they stood on the side of this road with this sign for all the drivers passing them to see. Uh, But the first driver who drove by just shouted, leave us alone, you religious nuts. And he sped by. And as it passed on the corner, they heard a loud splash. And one of the men by the side of the road turned to the other and they said, perhaps it would be better if we just put up a sign that says, bridge collapsed. Do you see... They had given a panicked message of, repent, turn around, the end is near. But people didn't respond to that message because they didn't explain why. They didn't explain why they needed to turn around, why it was so important. And sadly, we as Christians can make the same mistake. We can appeal to people, repent, turn to Christ, the end is nigh. But they don't know what we're talking about. They think, why do I need to trust in Christ? What does repent mean? And people respond so often with ridicule, not simply because the message seems ridiculous, although that is true, but because we haven't explained to them what the end means, why Christ is so important, why people need to repent. Uh, Jesus himself said, or um, John the Baptist before Jesus came, said, who has warned you to the people around? Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, The Bible says there is a judgment day coming and we're all going to have to give an account to God for the way we've lived our lives. Every one of us, whatever religion we have, uh, whatever status in life we have, rich, poor, old, young, uh, important, not so important, we're all going to have to stand before God and explain to him why we've lived the life the way we have. The Bible makes that very clear. And the question is, are you ready for that day? Do you have your defense ready before God? Will you be able to give a good account to God? And what the Bible says is, naturally speaking, none of us are. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have gone our own way, to some extent or another, And so naturally, 
on that day, we will be ashamed. We will not be ready to give an account of our lives because we will stand before our master, stand before our creator and have nothing to say because we turned our backs on him. That's why the Bible says we need Christ. We need someone who will stand there on our behalf. Uh, A lawyer, if I can put it that way, who will mediate for us, who will give us our defense. And that's what Christ provides. Uh, By dying on the cross, he took our punishment on himself. And so Christ can stand before God and can say to his father, yes, they're guilty. Yes, they're like sheep which have gone astray. But I've died for them. I've paid for them. I've paid the price and I have forgiven them because they repented and turned to me. They returned to the shepherd of their souls. That's the only way we can stand on that day of judgment. And we need to explain that to people. And they won't always understand. Sometimes they won't want to listen. But if we want to be sober and clear-minded, we need to explain the importance of Christ to people. Not just warning, the end is nigh, however true that is but explaining why that matters. But that's not the only reason we need to be sober and clear-minded. Did you notice what Peter said at the end of verse 7? He said, The end of all things at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Uh, Perhaps that's not necessarily the... uh, most straightforward translation of that verse. A better way of expressing it, perhaps, is that Peter is saying we must be serious and sober and watchful for the sake of our prayers. Our prayers will suffer. Uh, The answers to our prayers will suffer if we are not clear-minded and sober. Uh, I wonder if you see prayer in this way Uh, the bible describes prayer as like work not like work it is work often we don't view it like that we think of work as being something we do it's it's our activity our labor and prayer is just this kind of thing which if we're honest is often just a kind of uh, inconvenient side thing which we know we should do but really want to get on working and do and accomplish things not just sit and pray. But the Bible teaches very clearly that prayer in itself is work. And it's one of the most major, most important works that we must be involved in. And it's possible to be drunk at the wheel of prayer, to pray badly, to pray in a drunken state, as it were. To pray for the wrong thing, to pray in the wrong way, to not be serious and sober-minded in what we pray for. Because your prayers reveal a lot about you. My prayers reveal a lot about me. What you pray for reveals what you think is most important. What you pray for will reflect what you truly believe. And it will reveal if you truly believe the end of all things is at hand or not. 
Let me ask you, what are most of your prayers about? For so many, their prayers are about the here and now only. God, please give me that job. Please um, get me through that difficult situation. Please give me that. Please help me with this. And that's not wrong. Jesus said we should pray for our daily bread. But that's not all Jesus said we must pray for. In the Lord's Prayer, what did he start with? We should pray, um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our chief focus should be on God's kingdom, not our kingdom. Our chief concern should be on God's will, not merely our will. But what do so many of our prayers reveal? Actually, we are more concerned with our kingdom than God's. God, please help me as I try to build my life in the way I want it to be. Instead of, God, help me to build my life in the way you want it to be. You see what Peter's saying? He says, be serious and watchful. Be clear-minded in your prayers. Remember, the end is coming. The judgment day is approaching. Therefore, pray in light of that. Pray with that in mind, not merely your current earthly life, which will come to an end at some stage. Say it again. It's not wrong to pray for your material possessions, for your health and for all these other things. Give us this day our daily bread. But don't make that the substance of all your prayers. Pray for God's kingdom. Pray for his glory. Pray for his will. That's what it means to be sober and clear-minded in our prayers. So that's the first way. Now that's the first response we should have to the reality that Christ is coming back, that the judgment day is coming. We should be serious and watchful. We need to be clear-minded. But Peter doesn't stop there. Uh, In fact, Peter says that's not the most important response to the reality of Christ's second coming. Uh, Look what he says in verse 8. He says, and above all things, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter says the most important response that we can have to the reality that the judgment day is at hand is that we should love one another. We should love one another fervently, he says. It's a huge irony, isn't it, that the end times or the discussion about what's going to happen when before or as Christ returns has caused so much uh, anger and disagreement between Christians. Uh, Churches have split over the question of exactly how the second coming's going to happen. And that's in spite of the fact that Peter says the most important response that we can have to the reality of the second coming is that we love one another fervently. That's what Peter says we must do above all because love will cover 
a multitude of sins. When we love one another fervently, then a whole multitude of grievances and sins and aggravations melt away because we have a fervent love for each other. But Peter goes into more detail and he describes two ways in which we show love. So he says that we must be watchful and clear-minded for the sake of our prayers But then in verse 9, after saying the importance of loving one another, he says in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. He says one of the chief ways we show love to each other is by being hospitable without grumbling about it. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Peter says the end is coming... This world is going to be wrapped up very soon, relatively speaking. And he says, in response, we should be hospitable. That's the exact opposite of human instinct. Uh, What's the human instinct to the news that this world's about to end? The human reaction, the human instinct is to say, the end is nigh, so let's run. Let's hide. Let's gather together all our resources. Buy one of these kits you can buy online. Don't you see the other? I don't know what they're called. Apocalypse kits? Kits? I don't know. But they're all like powdered goods and things which will last for a long time. People say, prepare for the apocalypse. Get into your little bunker and hoard your possessions and prepare for the end. That's the exact opposite of what Peter says we should do. Peter says that God tells us the end is nigh, so we should be generous. We should be hospitable. We should welcome people in. Not run away and hide and hoard, but give and welcome. Precisely because the end is coming. Hospitality is not merely about welcoming people into your home. It's about sharing what you have, however small that might be, with others. And welcoming others in, not shutting them out. That is what hospitality means. And in teaching this, Peter's just teaching ancient wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, one of the books of wisdom in the Old Testament. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, the preacher writes this. Uh, He says in verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters... For you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. The preacher there says, give what you have. Because it will come back to you in the end. Uh, Give a serving to seven or to eight. Because you don't know what evil will happen on the earth. Uh, He doesn't say hoard your goods because you don't know what disaster will happen. He says, you don't know what disaster might happen, so give while you can. It's completely upside-down thinking to the way so many think. He goes on in verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 11. He says, in the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand. Be always giving, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So many people wait 
to be generous or to give until they find the ideal situation. They find the ideal cause to give to or they find the the perfect time to give and they think, no, I want to wait for that perfect time because I don't want to waste the gift. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes said, that's nonsense. You don't know. You don't know what's going to bear fruit and what's not. You don't know what the ideal situation is. Be generous. When you see a need, a real need that you can contribute to, don't withhold your hand. Obviously, don't give beyond your means. But within your means, be generous. Because you don't know what is going to happen next. Give while you have the chance. And that's exactly what Peter's saying in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another. The end is coming when you won't be able to be hospitable in the same way anymore. And did you notice what Peter added at the end there? He says, be hospitable or be generous to one another without grumbling. Some things don't change, and Peter obviously experienced what we so often experience today. It's one thing to be generous and to welcome people. It's another thing to do it without grumbling, to complain afterwards how long they were there or how much they ate or how much they drank. It's human nature, isn't it? We might on the outside put a smiling face, but on the inside, we're grumbling. Uh, It's interesting what the book of Proverbs chapter uh, 23 says. Uh, In verse 6, it says, Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. They're sort of giving, but every bite you take, they're kind of cringing because they know every bite you take is one less thing out of their cupboard. And they're apt to grumble. They're apt to complain. I once had a friend um, who had two sets of cups. And he had a big set of cups, a set of large cups, and a set of small cups. And he saved the big cups for the people he liked when they visit. And the people he disliked, he had the small cups for, so they stayed less time. You might say that's that's quite wise counsel. But that's not an attitude that we should foster. Not an attitude that we should encourage. Peter says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Have a generous heart. Have a welcoming, free heart which wants to bless others. I should perhaps just add one other bit of wisdom the book of Proverbs teaches us because as guests, we also have a responsibility. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 17, it says, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house lest he become weary of you and hate you. (laughs) So there's a two-way responsibility there. Yes, we should be generous and hospitable, but if we receive someone's hospitality, don't push it. (laughs) Don't be overly abusive of someone else's generosity. This is how we live in love with one another. Peter says we must be sober and clear-headed, but we must also be generous and hospitable without grumbling. But thirdly and lastly, he gives us a third way we should respond, a second way we should love. 
Look at verse 10. He says, as each one of you, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now that might initially sound a bit strange. What, what, does, what does Peter mean? As we've received a gift of the manifold grace of God, what does that mean? Well, it means simply this. All believers, if we're a believer here this morning, have been given a gift or multiple gifts by God. God has given us all abilities and skills and character traits which are designed to be used for the good of others. And Peter simply saying here, whatever your gift is, use it for the good of others. Don't hoard it for yourself. Don't hide it in a napkin, as the parable which Jesus told speaks of it. But give it, use it. Be a steward of the gift that God has given to you. Every one of us, if we're a believer, we have a gift we can contribute to other people. And those are not things that we should be proud about, that we should boast about, uh, that we should use for self and aggrandizement or uh, self-esteem or uh, our own purposes. God gives us those gifts for helping others and he will ask a return on the gift he gives to us. Gifts are a responsibility as much as they are a privilege. I heard a story about two students, uh, student, students? students who graduated from law school. And the highest ranking student was a blind man. Uh, but when he received his honour, he insisted that half the credit must go to his friend. And his friend was someone who had no arms. And they had met one another in school when the armless man had guided the blind man down a flight of steps. And this meeting turned into a friendship. And the blind man used to carry the armless man's books while the armless man read aloud in their common study. And each of them, though deficient in different ways, were able to help one another. And together they were stronger than they would have been alone. That's a wonderful picture of what the church should be like. We all have different strengths and we also have different weaknesses. And our strengths are designed to cover the weaknesses of others. So that we can be built up and stronger like a body than we would be on our own. As Paul says somewhere, the eye cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Uh, the uh, hand can't say to the ear, I don't need you. All the parts of the body need to be working for us to benefit the whole. And that's what Peter's teaching here. He's saying, use your gifts for others. Don't simply hoard it for yourself. And he gives two examples of gifts in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Uh, that word translated speaks means literally that. It means talking. Some people have the gift of communication. Other people don't. But those who do should use it for the benefit of others. Sadly, of course, many gifted communicators 
use their gift, but not for others. They use it in such a way because they simply love talking and using it for, because they enjoy the sound of their own voice. Peter says, don't do that. Use your gift as the oracles of God. Use your gift to communicate that which is most important, what God says for the benefit of others. He gives another example, verse 11. He says, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Uh, by ministers there, he doesn't mean a minister, like in a church. He means simply someone who serves. Uh, some people have a gift for seeing needs. Uh, some people just walk heedlessly through life and they can't, couldn't see a need if it hit them in the face. But other people have a deep emotional intelligence and they can spot someone in need a mile off. And Peter says, use that gift. When you see someone in need, seek to do what you can to ease that need. Again, sadly, some people have that gift. They can spot a need, but instead of using that to try and relieve the needs, they simply use it as something to point at and say, look at that problem, someone else needs to fix it. Uh, Often people can point to the government or to a leadership team or whatever, and they will say, look at that obvious need, why aren't they doing something about it? But they never think, what can I do to relieve the need? Obviously, government does have a responsibility. Leadership teams have responsibility. But we all have responsibility. And whatever gift we have, we have the responsibility to use it for others. So I wonder this morning, what is your gift? What has God given to you? Use it for his glory. As it says in verse 11 again. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same degree of gift. Our gift might be relatively small. But in Christ's hands, it can be used in ways we can hardly imagine. Like that little boy with his five loaves and two fish. A gift which Christ used to feed 5,000 people and more. So what is your gift? Are you using it for God's kingdom and his glory. But perhaps you say, well, I don't know what my gift is. Perhaps you say, well, I don't have a gift. I always remember this this is stuck in my mind when I was a a little bit younger. And uh, my sister said to me once, very cruelly this was, by the way, but she said to me, what can you do? (laughs) Um, And we might feel like that. We might think, well, what can I do? I don't have an obvious gift. Well, let me give just two little bits of advice. Uh, Instead of worrying and fretting about what your gift is, uh, look around for needs, first of all. Uh, Look to see what needs there are and seek to, as much as you can, fulfill those needs. And in doing that, more than likely, you will find your gift. Look for needs 
rather than searching inside yourself for gifting. And secondly, ask other people. Ask other people what your gift is. Tragically, I think we've all met people who are convinced they have a certain gift which they do not have. Uh, We see a lot of them on the uh, X Factor auditions. And some uh, grandparent or something has told them that they have a wonderful singing voice, and unfortunately they do not. And they discovered it too late. And it's true, we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves that we have a gift that we do not have. Have the humility to ask others. And others will confirm or otherwise the gift you have. And once you discover your gift, use it for God's kingdom. Use it for God's glory. Use it for others. And that's how we respond to the reality that the end is nigh. Not by screaming, not by shouting, not by panicking, but first by being clear-minded and sober. Secondly, by being hospitable and generous to others. And lastly, by using our gifts for the benefit of others and most of all for God. Let me just end with a quote from John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley is supposed to have once said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That's the way we prepare for Christ's second coming. And with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to our last hymn, number 458. 458. It's another hymn which refers to Christ's coming, but chiefly looks back to what Christ has done for us to make us ready for that day. It's 458. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men or why a shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back they know not how or when. So we'll close by singing number 458.